Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a searching question this morning. To whom and to what are you enslaved? According to the Apostle Paul in this particular text, every single person is indeed enslaved to someone and some things. The language of slavery very much dominates this passage. The word for slave being mentioned eight times. Listen to Romans six fifteen to 23 as I read. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Contrary to what our modern ears think of such a metaphor as slavery, to speak about a person's commitment and choices, Paul nevertheless uses it to describe two kinds of enslavement. One which is to sin impurity, lawlessness, and eventual eternal death. And another kind of enslavement, which is to obedience, righteousness, and eventual eternal life. Notice in this passage, Paul is describing both kinds of enslavement. With one, you are enslaved to one kind of master, sin. And with the other, and enslavement to a wholly different kind of master, God Himself. This is why I asked the question, as I did at the beginning of the message, to whom are you enslaved? Everyone is serving one kind of master or another, but not both at the same time. The fact that a person 
could be a genuine Christian and yet be a slave to sin is utterly denied by the Apostle Paul in this text. That is why he begins in verse 15 with a question, which is itself an interjection by Paul, based upon what he believes will be an objection by some to what he has just said in verse 14. Look at it with me. For sin will have no dominion or lordship over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You see, his contention in verse 14 is that for genuine Christians, sin will not have the dominion, the lordship, since we're not under law, but under grace. In other words, Christians have seen sin's penalty and its empowering enslavement broken in their lives. And it is because they are under the dictates of the bondage of God's law at the first, but are then released and instead placed under a new realm, which is the realm or sphere of God's grace. They've been removed, they've been transformed, they've been transferred to a completely different realm. It's a completely different life, it's a completely different attitude, it's a completely different sphere. But as soon as he asserts this truth, he anticipates a very real objection, possibly even from the Jews to whom he has been writing much about, not exclusively, but certainly primarily in many cases. And it may be that some of these Jewish antagonists would say something like this, but Paul, wait, wait, what do you mean we are not under law but under grace? And look at verse 15. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Maybe that's what they're saying. And certainly that's what he anticipates that they are going to say. Because especially as a Jewish person, you can't just, as it were, seem with the mere waving of the hand, throw away the law, can you? God gave us that law. He gave it very specifically on Mount Sinai. He gave it to Moses. Are you telling us that we're now not under any law but under grace? Are you going to throw law right out the window? Now I want you to see that this is not, by the way, the same argument that he posed in verse 1 of this chapter. Look at verse 1. In verse 1... Paul is answering the objection that since the believer has been transferred to the new realm of grace, we could, in theory, as according to some, believe or be led to believe that an increase in our sinning would actually bring about an increased measure of God's abundant grace. Do you remember that? Uh, Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Someone says, look, if if we've been transferred into this wonderful, magnanimous world of grace, well, if God's grace abounds all the more where sin increases, let's just sin up a storm. If we do that, God's grace will be on more abundant display. That's the question that he poses in verse 1, and he answers that question, may it never 
be. May this kind of wicked thinking never be. And now, in verse 15, he's answering another objection that because believers have been delivered from the guilt and the penalty and the bondage of God's law, they're just free from the responsibility completely from obeying God's law. If if on the one hand we say no to the idea that grace abounds where sin abounds, so therefore sin all you want so that grace will abound all the more, maybe one of these objections will come to Paul and he anticipates it. Hey, what about the idea that if we've been released from the law altogether, because you're not under law, you're under grace, hey, maybe we can just live like we want to. Maybe we can just do our own kind of self-styled worship. Maybe we can live the way we choose because, hey, we're not under law. We're under grace. If God's grace is as you say it is, Paul, then we've got real freedom now. Since God's magnificent grace has been poured out on us, we must have no moral obligations to God's standard of right and wrong. Is that what you're saying? I mean, can you imagine that kind of thing to a Jew? A person who loves the law of God? A person who wants to follow the law of God? A person who wants to obey the law of God? What what do you think, Paul? Is this what you're saying? But just as he says no to falling into the ditch on one side of the road in verse 1, he equally says no to following falling into the ditch on the other side in verse 15. Look at what he says. By no means. Same negative response as in verse 1, right? By no means. Absolutely not. Just because we have now experienced freedom from sin, it does not follow that we have the freedom to sin. And that's probably as simply as I can state it. We have been freed from sin, but that's not, therefore, a freedom to sin. Not at all. And by the way, this is the Bible's most famous passage in which we argue against antinomianism. Now, that's a big word, but you ought to know that word. It's used a lot in Christian circles. It's talked about regarding a lot of people. They're antinomians. Anti, of course, means against. Namas means law. They're anti-law. And this is very much probably what is at the heart of this objection. People, no doubt, in Paul's own day are saying, but Paul, this sounds like you're one of those antinomians. Sounds like to me that if you say that we are no longer under law but under grace, that's an antinomian statement. You have an attitude, Paul, against the law? Against obedience? Are you telling me that since we're under grace, we have no more idea of obeying God's righteous standards? That it's merely optional? Are you one of those antinomians? Paul says, absolutely not. By no means. And he's teaching in these verses what is a forceful denial 
against the utterly groundless assumption that since Christians are no longer under law but grace, they can continue to serve their old master called sin. And he says, that cannot happen, that must not happen, that will not happen to true believers. They won't be living under the power of sin, the power of sin's dictates, enslaved to sin. They've been delivered from it. But you know what? His answer is even greater than by no means because he goes much further than that. He doesn't just deny it. He teaches us regarding it. And he does so from verses 16 to 23. And he explains there why it can never be this way. But exactly how does he do it? Well, he does so by giving us a series of five contrasts. Five contrasts between a master and his subjects. Five contrasts between a master and his subjects. And here they are. Number one, he's going to give us in verse 16 the contrast of the master's slave. The contrast of the master's slave. And then secondly, in verses 17 and 18, the contrast of the master's standard. The contrast of the master's standard. Thirdly, in verse 19, it's the contrast of the master's summons, his summons. And then fourthly, in verses 20 to 22, the contrast of the master's sequence, sequence. And then finally, in verse 23, the contrast of the master's sentencing. Five easy S's to remember. Slave, standard, summons, sequence, and sentencing. And I think as you ponder those five contrasts that he gives us here, you and I could use these things as a checklist to determine whether or not you or I have the attitude or lifestyle of an antinomian, an attitude against the law of God, even with those who live in the realm of grace. You might be one of those who wrongly assumes that you can continue to sin while living presumptuously under the grace of God. And that's what Paul wants to deal with right here. And remember, each of these contrasts is designed to answer the question about why the believer is still obligated to obey God's Word and not to abuse grace. It's a great text, the preeminent text, on how it is that we live under grace, but we don't abuse grace. Do you ever talk to someone and it appears by their characteristic manifestation of their lifestyle that they are living outside the standards of God? You take them to this text and you tell them, this is what Paul was answering by way of an objection in his time, and this is the way I answer the objectionable nature of your lifestyle, Romans 6, 15-23. Let's look at the first one, the contrast of the master's slave. Verse 16. Do you not know? Implying, of course, that they should know. Hypothetically, do you not know? It's a teaching device. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death 
or of obedience which leads to righteousness? This is the contrast of the master's slave. This is the idea that you have two competing masters. And those masters are obeyed by their servants, by their slaves. That's what he's setting up here. He's setting up a contrast. And first of all, notice that when Paul says, if you present yourselves, he's not saying that some men will choose to present themselves as slaves and some will not. That's not what he's saying. This is not an if as though it may or may not happen. As I said before, it will happen. We are slaves of someone or something. No, he's contending that everyone is a slave. They're a slave already, and it's simply a matter of whose slave you are. This is why he goes on to say that you are slaves of the one whom you obey. You are, he says. Everyone has definite commitments, definite passions, definite desires, definite drives. And the one whom you readily commit yourself is the one in whom you are obedient. That's his whole point. You are going to follow the dictates of whoever your master is. And there are only two. Look at what he says. If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you will be obedient, he says. You will follow it. For whomever you present yourself as a slave, your presentation to your master is an obedient slavery. And there are only two. And it's God and sin. That's his point. Everyone, in fact, regardless of who they are, where they are, what station in life they find themselves, is either a slave to sin or a slave to obedience. That's the teaching of the Word of God. Notice what he says. He gives the contrast itself. You are, present tense, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. You're actively involved in a slavery. It's either a slavery to sin, he says, either of sin, which leads to death, or, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Let me be more precise. If a person is an obedient slave of sin, it means they are not a Christian. It means they are still a part of the old man, the old life. It means they're still in Adam. Paul says a person like this is enslaved to sin's mastery and it eventually, inevitably leads to death. This is, this is gospel talk, isn't it? This is challenging someone with regard to the gospel. This is telling somebody that if you're enslaved to sin, you're not a Christian. You know, I'm often really amazed when sometimes either in a counseling room or in discussions with other people, when they describe their lifestyle and their unbroken pattern of sin, and then when they say, but I'm still a Christian, and I say to them, no, you're not. They say, well, how can you say such a thing? It's arrogant for you to say, you don't know, you don't know my heart. I said, well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says regarding what you just told me. The Bible says, if you're living in a slavery to sin, you're not a Christian. I'm just telling you what the Bible says about you. It's not my commentary on your life. It's the Scripture's commentary on your life. But notice what he says. 
It's either a slavery to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Notice here that he says that if a person is a slave of obedience, this means he is a Christian. See the contrast? The person is obedient to Christ. He's been transferred into the realm of grace. And if a person is obedient to Christ, inevitably, Paul says, leads to righteousness. Isn't this why Paul, Paul so often referred to himself so freely and so eagerly as a bond slave of Jesus Christ? Apparently he didn't have a problem with it. Oh, there might have been, of course, in the human dimension, a lot of problems with the concept of slavery itself. But apparently Paul didn't mind borrowing the term and saying very eagerly and very readily, I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Listen, beloved, no one can say that they are enslaved to nothing or to no one. I want to show you this. Look in John chapter 8. This is an amazing description by Jesus Himself of a few people we call the Pharisees. John chapter 8, this is an amazing thing. This answers forever the question of people who say, I'm not enslaved to to anyone. I'm not enslaved to anything. Listen to John 8.21. So He said to them again, to the Pharisees, we know that because of verse 13, I'm going away and you will seek Me and you will die in your sin. I'd say that's pretty declarative. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will He kill Himself? Since He says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So they said to Him, who are you? Isn't that what I said a moment ago? I mean, what, what, what do you get off telling me about my life? He said, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you. Wow. Got a lot more to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And then verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I am always doing the things that are pleasing to Him. And as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. You see, God opened their spiritual eyes to see, right? The Pharisees, he did not. Verse 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. Wow. Really? You're not enslaved to anyone? And then they derisively say, how is it that you say you will become free? You see, a person who, don't think, who, who doesn't think he's in bondage doesn't realize what freedom is. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. How many of us commit sin? Well, then that means we're enslaved to it. That's Jesus' own words. 
And since Jesus is the only one who has ever lived, who could ever be said to have had no sin, therefore he was not enslaved to it, every single other person who has ever lived, man, woman, and child, who has therefore sinned, and they all have, it means, obviously, that we are enslaved to sin. So what do you say when someone comes along and says, I'm not enslaved to anything. I'm not enslaved to anyone. Jesus said you were. John 8, 34. You're enslaved. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin, not a sin, commits sin. Sin because they're a sinner, is a slave to sin. So I ask you this morning, whose slave are you? Are you enslaved to sin? Or are you enslaved to obedience to Jesus Christ? See, that's the contrast. That's the contrast of the master's slave. You either are enslaved to your sin, and therefore He's your master, or you're enslaved to Jesus Christ, and therefore He's your master. There's a second contrast here. It's the contrast of the master's standard. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God. Underline that. Underscore that. Put quotes around that. Put an exclamation point at the end of that. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Just like in John 8, when some of those Jews therefore believed, it was because thanks was to God because while they were once slaves of sin, they had become obedient from the heart. Thanks be to God, I should say. It's God's doing. Whereas once all men were slaves of sin with a death sentence hanging over their heads, Paul says, but thanks be to God, that's who you once were past tense. Are you rejoicing in your heart? If you're a Christian, you are. Because you know what you've been delivered from. For anyone who's become obedient to Jesus Christ, like Paul himself saying here, should be thanking God for what He's done in their lives. Do you forget what you've been delivered from? We have none other than God the Father Himself to thank for removing us from the realm of divine judgment and transferring us into the realm of divine grace. What thanks could we give to God? Look at what he says in Romans 6.17. You have become obedient from the heart. You say, why does he use the word obedient? I think he uses the concept of obedience here because he's talking amidst the overall context in Romans 6 about lordship. And lordship is always a matter of obedience Does it not say in verse 16 that you are an obedient slave, whether it's a slavery to sin or a slavery to righteousness? Yes, it is always and forever an obedience. Which is your obedience? You obey sin's call, sin's demand? Or do you obey 
Jesus Christ, the Lord? And do you obey Him from the heart? Who has the mastery over you? It's either mastery to sin, which forever pulls you, pulls you into its active, willing obedience. You might not have thought of it like that before, but serving sin is a measure of obedience. And you will obey it if you've not been delivered from it. You will obey it. Or is it God the Father Himself whom you obey? Thanking Him, praising Him, singing to Him, doing all that you can to express your love for Him because He is the one who breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. Oh, what can we now do but experience for the first time obedience from the heart? So you couldn't do that before. The heart wasn't bent toward obedience to God the Father. The heart in the mastery of sin is always and forever bent toward unrighteousness. You know what he says here? We've received a heart transplant. It's a heart transplant. And what kind of obedience from the heart have we received? This is, this is directly hitting against the heresy of antinomianism. Look at verse 17. You were once slaves of sin, but you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You see, Paul says here, there is a standard. There is a standard. There's definitely a standard being referred to here. You see, when we were given the faith, the gift of faith and the gift of repentance... It was so we would not flip and flop around in the Christian life without direction, without purpose, without obedience. You were once slaves of sin with the attendant inability to obey God whatsoever, but you've now instead become obedient from the heart and there's a new standard of teaching in your life. There's a new Lord to obey. That's, for instance, why Jesus Himself said, there's a new commandment I give you that you love one another. It's a new commandment. It's a new day. It's a new thinking. It's a new process. It's a new heart change. It's a new standard. There is a standard in the Christian life. It's not just, hey, it's all of grace. Grace meaning I can do what I want. I can live the way I want to. Oh, yes, I know that's what the Bible says, but we're all under grace. Come on, you legalist. Come over to our side and be a libertine. Just just express yourself. Don't get caught up with all those narrow rules, all those fundamentalist ideas. Come on over to the grace side. Paul says, well, we'll come over to the grace side, but it's not licentiousness. It's not it. There is a standard of teaching. And he says, no antinomians need apply here. You may have thought you had standards before coming to Christ, but they weren't really standards at all. You cannot attempt to maintain a mere verbal profession of Jesus Christ with obedience from the heart without obedience to the standard of teaching. That's what it says. An antinomian, by the very definition of the term, is against a standard, against law. 
If you're a person merely looking for fire insurance from hell itself, don't read Romans 6. If you're assuming you can live any old way you want without being committed to a standard of teaching with demands absolute obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you're still operating as a, as a, as a slave to your master, sin. God's grace is given to undeserving sinners, but not so that they can turn around and renounce the standard of teaching. It's not like that at all. God's grace is given to us so that we may rejoice in the standard of teaching, right? That we rejoice in it. Isn't that exactly why Paul said in Titus 2.11 these words, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, urging us, goading us, provoking us to renounce ungodliness, Not to live in it, to renounce worldly passions, not to be captivated by them, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's God's plan. Oh yes, grace is abundant. Drink of it freely, but not so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Don't do that. By the way, this word... Standard in standard of teaching. Tupas means here an imprint. To follow the example of a pattern. God has established a body of teaching for which or by which we must follow as a pattern so that we can model for our lives who Jesus Christ is. We're supposed to be conformed to His image, aren't we? How can an antinomian be conformed to the image of Christ when he rejects the standard of teaching? This is the kind of godly imprint which should characterize us as believers in Christ. And I want you to notice something else about this standard of teaching we're to follow. He says at the end of verse 17, You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Oh, that is great. It's a great phrase. Please understand that this is not saying that obedient Christians have committed themselves to a standard of teaching which has been passed down to them. Now you say, but I thought that's what you just said. Yes, I did, but here's what I mean. Even though uh, following a standard is what we're commanded to do, and in other places we certainly are commanded to do that, Paul's actual point here is to use a passive verb to which you were committed. It was something that was done to you. It's not something that you do yourself. Yes, you are to commit yourself to a standard of teaching. Yes, you are to say no to an antinomian lifestyle. But this verse is saying that you are committed to a standard of teaching because it was committed unto you by someone else. And that someone else is God. God did this. It's a standard of teaching to which you were committed. As someone well said, it is not the teaching that is handed down to believers, but the believers who are handed over to the teaching. That's right. You realize that as the body of Christ, there's a standard of teaching that God has given us called the Word of God, and God has vouchsafed. He's taken this body of teaching and He's taken the the body of believers and He's handed over the believers to the teaching. Wow! It's incredible. 
He's not only provided the answers, the word of life, but He's provided the very power that takes the believers and places them into the teaching. Credible. God takes those whom He wills and He hands them over to the pattern of sound doctrine and living and He commits them to it. And what happens when God commits Himself to something? Does it fail? (laughs) Does it fail to happen? No. He commits us to the standard. No wonder Paul says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And look, there's another passive verb in verse 18. And having been set free from sin. That's not you setting yourself free from sin. It's that you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of righteousness. This is why we thank God. This is what He sovereignly chose to do. We haven't set ourselves free from sin. Rather, it is that we have been set free from sin, not by our our own doing, but by His. We've become, by God's grace and mercy, slaves of righteousness. And don't lose the balance of that phrase, slaves of righteousness. We have been set free. Yeah, that's right, the antinomian says. We've been set free, baby. Just live it out. Do what you want. Because of my new freedom in Christ, I can live any way I want. Or maybe even the Jews were saying in Paul's day, Paul, don't don't tell people about this freedom from the law. Don't tell them that. Some of them are going to go out and believe you. He says, well, we have been set free from the law. They'll say, yeah, but you'll cause people to be those libertines living any way they so choose. And you know what people often do? Okay, well, we can't do that. So what we do, we've got to come up with a whole bunch of ah, biblical rules. It's the way you've got to wear your hair. It's the way you've got to wear your clothes. It's the way you've got to conduct yourself. You've got to do a lot of stuff that even though we know the Word of God doesn't say it, you've got to do that because it's going to conform to a pattern, to a standard. Here's the problem. It's not a standard according to the Word of God. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, do not exceed that which is written. Don't do that. Don't come up with a lot of extra biblical rules. We have a standard of teaching. And if it doesn't cover every jot and tittle of your life in the details, don't worry about it. God will lead you into truth. That's why he says in chapter 14 of Romans does Paul, let let everybody be convinced in his own mind about those gray areas. Let everybody be convinced in their own mind. You don't have to come up with a lot of rules. A lot of regulations that the Word of God doesn't, that God Himself doesn't. He can say, on the balance, we have been set free, but don't fall onto the ditch on the other side in order to become a slave of righteousness. You say, I do not understand that. You mean to tell me I'm free to be a slave? That's right. You are free in Christ to be a slave of Christ. Paul didn't have any problem with that. There's no contradiction here. There's no logical fallacy here. I'm free. Free to do what Christ wants me to do. Free to do what Christ commands me to do. And you know what? If you're a Christian, you don't have a problem with that at all. Because 1 John says, and when we keep His commandments, they're not burdensome. 
They're not burdensome commandments. We love the commands of God. We want to do the commands of God. Ask yourself the question, do I want to do the commands of God? Do I want, do I want to live this way? Do I want to rejoice? Do I want to thank God? Beloved, this is one of the true tests of a person's professed salvation. Do you desire righteousness more than you desire sin? Don't answer too quickly. Don't answer too quickly. Do you, as a characteristic understanding of your life, desire an enslavement to right living, right thinking, right speaking? Or do you, as a characteristic understanding of your life, desire to be the Lord of your own life? If your desire for sin is more than your desire for righteousness, you're still enslaved to sin's mastery. You are. And I plead with you, To seek by God's own enablement to be free from sin. Cry out to Him. Call out to Him. Plead with Him so that by His power you can say, Yes, I know I'm free from sin, but I'm a willing bond slave of Jesus Christ. I want to serve Christ. I want to live for Christ. I want to love Christ. I want to do what Christ commands. I don't want to do my own thing. I've already seen that that gets me in a lot of trouble. I've already seen that those consequences are not what I like. I want to live for Christ. I want to love Him. I want to be obedient from the heart. And I want to obey the standard of teaching that I've received, just like my fellow believers, so that I can prove that I'm one of those for whom God committed me into that very standard, and I don't chafe against it. I love the law of God. That's why Paul himself said, look, don't don't think the law is anything other than it is, righteous, holy, and good. It's not the law that's a problem. It's my mastery to the sin as a result of violating the law. That's the problem. And if you and I are people who profess Jesus Christ, we're not going to say like the antinomian, Get out of my way. I'll live my life like I want. You'll say, Christ, you must be my Lord. Look at how I've fouled up my life. Look at the life I've made of my choices. Come to me. Forgive me. Allow me to live in your presence as one who is obedient from the heart, being desirous of living to the standard of teaching to which I can be committed. Oh Lord, that's my desire. Let's pray together. Father, where did we ever, ever come to the place of thinking that we could say yes to grace but no to our sin? Where did we ever come to say yes to grace and yes to my sin? Lord, we cannot say yes to both. We cannot say yes to both. We have to say yes to one and no to the other. 
Father, please show us, show every individual here, whether they have said yes to Christ and no to their sin. Show them whether they have been living a lie, trying to say, I'm saying yes to both. I believe in Christ. I profess Christ. I say I'm a Christian. But I also would acknowledge that sin is so enslaving to me that it's what I really love because I'm doing it. Oh Lord, take us all and Give us this checklist. Give us the truth about ourselves. Are we attempting to say yes to both? Lord, it cannot be. We cry out to You, deliver us from one so that we might be enslaved to Jesus Christ, willing and desirous of obedience from the heart. May it be so, Father, through Your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Blessed name of the Trinity. Amen.